We're going to this morning start into a little series on marriage and family. And as soon as I say that, you know, I understand that there are people with us this morning that aren't married. Uh, there are people with us this morning that have been married but aren't now uh, for any number of reasons. Uh, there are people maybe sitting here that aren't sure they ever want to get married. <laughs> and they're wondering, uh, oh, and there may be some people here who are glad they're no longer married. I, I don't know. There's a whole range of us, aren't there? Uh, and you could ask the question, why a series on marriage? Do I even need to be here for this? You know, who does this even uh, relate to or to whom does it matter? And I would just say a couple things on that before we dive in. Um, one is you never know if you are single, what God is going to do in your life. The day may come when you are married or are married again. I just read, and you see these things all the time, but I just uh, read about John Schultz and Joy Knowlton got married during the COVID crisis in the kind of the uh, pinnacle of it, 95 years old, both of them, 95 years old. Uh, they found each other, they found love, they got married and uh, they had to do it in, in a bubble, but, but they got married. You never know, you never know, is, would be one of my reasons to you just to listen to what we're going to be talking about in this series and as we introduce it this morning. Uh, also, I would say that everything we talk about in terms of marriage and its relevance to us, uh, how to relate to a spouse, how to uh, serve one another, die to self and, and serve someone else. All of these things apply to us in all of our relationships. Even if God never leads you to marry, some of the same principles and dynamics are important to you in relationship as you seek to serve and love other men and women as friends, deep friends, hopefully, some of the same dynamics that we will be looking at in the weeks to come with regards to marriage apply in those relationships as well. So I would just submit to you, uh, you ought to pay attention as we study about marriage and family because it's relevant to you, even if you're not. I would also submit that this is a, a big topic of interest in God's word, the Bible. And because of that, because of that alone, you need to know and understand something about what God says about this thing he's created called marriage. So there, will some of you listen? <laughs> I hope so, okay. Before we go any further, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together in this room uh, as a, a family that you have created and you have made by adopting us into your family and making us your children. And I'm thankful for everyone here, God. Some of us may be here and not even sure of where we stand with regards to our faith or do we believe you, Jesus, are the Son of God. And, and for that, we're thankful too. We're thankful for everybody here. But we would ask God that your spirit would work as only your spirit can to just peel back the layers uh, of our thinking, of our hearts, so that we can adjust and, and bring our thinking more in line with the truth that you reveal about yourself and the truth that you reveal about us. So God, as we study together now, would you teach us? That is our prayer and we offer it up to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Amen. So as I said, we are entering into this little series and this morning's message is really an introduction to this series. I was talking to a young man recently and we were talking about his younger sister. Uh, he told me that his sister had just graduated from high school 
So, you know, four years of, of high school. And during that time, she'd been dating one guy steadily that whole time, which is kind of unusual, actually, I think, for high school students. And so I just kind of asked him. I didn't think much about it. I, I just kind of asked him, well, do you think that they'll get married? And uh, his response was kind of interesting, actually. Uh, he said almost immediately, absolutely not. His sister already had a good relationship. Why would you want to layer on all the mess of marriage? And I thought that was interesting. I also thought that was kind of sad, really, because it means that people like this young man, and perhaps if he's right, uh, his sister as well, uh, they, they just don't get it. They, they haven't understood what marriage is about, the significance of this institution. You see, it's not uh, just this young man and his sister, actually. There's actually a movement in our culture, I would say, uh, towards or in the direction of understanding less and less the significance of marriage. Today, the majority of American adults believe that cohabitation is generally a good idea. Two-thirds of adults, 65%, either strongly or somewhat uh, strongly agree that it's a good idea to live uh, with your partner before marrying them possibly not marrying them at all. 84% of that group believe that the reason to cohabitate before marriage is to just test compatibility. That the way to find out if you can make it, if you can live together uh, fruitfully, happily, is to first live together before you make commitments to one another. And I would say they, they don't see the why of marriage. They, they don't see marriage as a beautiful union of two human beings lovingly committed to one another for life. A relationship that actually mirrors God's relationship to his people. The bride. The Bible calls the church the bride. That's us. The Bible teaches that marriage is God's institution. It says that he designed it. It says that he ordained it. It says that he uses it. It says that he even blesses it. And it's not just a cultural development that sprang up spontaneously sometime in the Bronze Age. That's not what marriage is. It's not a human contrivance or a human convention. It is something that God put in place even before sin entered into the world. Because you understand that's part of the story as Christians understand the story. This thing of the fall, sin entering into the world and corrupting everything, including us. Now, this, this whole notion, this idea that God instituted marriage begins to tell us or answer the question of why marriage. The first chapters of Genesis tell us that when God created the universe, he observed that everything that he had created was all good, sometimes very good. Six times we're told, in fact, in Genesis 1, that what was created was good or very good. But God, after creating the universe and all the cosmos, everything in it, animals and in Adam still saw that something was missing in paradise. Paradise. Something was still needed to make this perfect world that he had made complete. In Genesis chapter 2, God says this, Genesis 2.18, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now I read that and I scratch my head a little bit. And I'm kind of like, wow, that's kind of interesting. That's pretty unexpected about paradise. God's perfect world still had one piece missing, a significant, important piece. Adam, this individual he had made in his image, had no companion. He had no one with whom to relate, no one with whom to connect, no one with whom to partner, no one suitable, no one like him, humanly speaking. 
And here's the point. Being made in the image of God means that we humans, of course, we're, we're like him. We are relational creatures. God in eternity is the one and three, the triune God, a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is, of course, a great mystery to us, the doctrine of the Trinity. How can God be one, but at the same time be an inseparable, eternal, intimate, loving community of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? We don't know. Nobody can explain that one. But that is how God reveals himself to us. That is who God is, but because we are made in this God's image, it's accurate and fair to say that if we try to function in isolation, if we keep our relationships just on the surface, keep people around us at a distance, we will fail to thrive, friends. We will fail to thrive. There's a pastor, Scott Sauls, pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville. He's written a half a dozen books or so, really Uh, really wonderful man. He writes these words. He says, this is true because we cannot be vitally connected to God who is one and three while remaining disconnected relationally from each other. He has made us for community, not for isolation, for interdependence, not independence, for relational warmth and receptivity, not for relational coldness and distance. And I would add the deepest expression of this truth is this intimate connection we call marriage. Now, friendship and relationship is also an example of intimate connection, but just not as intimate as what we find in marriage. Now, this is all part of the answer to the question, why marriage? Why does it matter? What, you know, why marriage? God's provision for Adam's loneliness in paradise was Eve. You recall the situation. Adam had had all the animals paraded in front of him and he had given them names, each one. But what he discovered in that process is that none of these animals, none of them were suitable companions for him. He needed a helper corresponding to him, Genesis 2.18 says. And so together, Adam and Eve would share life. They would serve God's purposes. They would glorify God together. That's what they were made to do. They would help each other grow and be who God had intended them to be. When Eve is presented finally to Adam for the first time, uh, Adam really waxes eloquent. And you know, you've heard these passages, uh, the, these phrases. We've uh, read them many times before. It says, this, at last, hold on to that, at last. There, there's that saying something. You know, I, I've named all the other animals. Man, nope, nope. It's, it's a great looking bear, but that's all I can say. You, you know, I, no, no, no. And, and then it says, this, at last, at, Adam says, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Call that intimacy. That's intimacy. That's connectedness. That's community at its deepest human level. Now, just a quick aside, uh, is this saying that a person has to be married in order to have a good, complete, fulfilled life? Well, the short answer to that is no. No, that's not what it's saying. I mean, for 
one obvious example, Jesus wasn't married. The apostle Paul wasn't married and yet they knew all about connection. They knew all about companionship. And, and so both of them were deeply connected to other people. Both had an abundance of nurturing, healthy, life-giving relationships that included men and women. And yet they both knew that marriage in a very special way mirrored God's relationship, the relationship that God had established with his people, with the church. Marriage was something very special. And I would point out Jesus uh, is, of course, husband to the church, to his bride, the church. And he functions that way. And I would point out that the Apostle Paul, although not married to a wife, was a wife, in fact, by virtue of being the bride of God, the bride of Christ of the church, a member of the church. All just to say this, both of them knew something of the purpose and something of the importance of marriage. Both knew that marriage was a picture of God's covenant love for his bride, the church. And we're going to talk a lot more, more about that. But when you ask the question, why marriage? Part of the answer has to be that marriage is an institution that God made because it is a picture of his love, his covenantal love, his covenantal faithfulness toward his bride, toward you, toward me. Marriage is an institution designed by God to give human beings a, a taste of that love, a taste of that covenantal faithfulness. Now, another part of the answer to why marriage uh, might surprise you a little bit. Uh, marriage is an institution uh, that this side of the fall, that's a term that Christians use. It refers to that time in the Bible when Adam and Eve chose to disobey God and sin entered them and sin entered the world and corrupted everything. So marriage is an institution that this side of that catastrophic event we call the fall, uh, living in this broken, sinful world, marriage is an institution that is guaranteed to disappoint Amen. It disappoints. And that is actually a very good thing, really. You see, marriage can't make you happy. The irony is everybody gets married thinking it will. But marriage can't make you happy. Marriage cannot satisfy your longing for connection or your longing to be loved or your longing for companionship. Marriage cannot fix your problem of loneliness. Did you know you had that problem? The problem of loneliness. Uh, again, this is Pastor Scott Sauls, and uh, I, I love what he writes about this. He says, the surface appearance of our lives often presents a more connected, relationally full, emotionally satisfying picture than how things really are. Hashtag Facebook. <laughs> Whether from a stage or behind a pulpit or through a screen, we look a lot more together than what we feel in our hearts, than what we really are. Our performances and profiles betray our reality. We too can feel alienated, isolated, and sometimes friendless. The curse that was first pronounced on Eve in the garden, that relationships would be a struggle even under the best conditions, also touches our lives. Isolation can become painfully familiar to us even at our own dinner tables. Sadly true about all of us. He says the words of the 20th century novelist Thomas Wolfe resonate that the central and inevitable fact of human existence is loneliness. 
Whether we are introverts or extroverts, married or single, standing on the stage or sitting in the cheap seats, preaching sermons or listening to love songs, we all share the struggle to connect. And you might ask, why? <laughs> why? <laughs> why is loneliness even a thing? Why does feeling lonely seem like the norm versus the exception for so many of us? Why? Well, according to the Bible, we experience loneliness not because there's something wrong with us, but actually because there's something right with us. We experience loneliness because we know all of us, follower of Jesus or not a follower of Jesus, we know all of us deep down that we were made for more connection and more intimacy and more love than we ever seem to experience here on earth. In other words, we sense that this, this life, our relationships are not really how the things are supposed to be. We know this. Now, marriage in particular and relationships in general, as I've said, teach us that there is something more, something we long for that no human interaction can satisfy. And that, of course, I would say the Bible says is almighty God. A deep, intimate, loving, committed connection to our maker is what every human being, know it or not, longs for. Well, all of that uh, is just saying that if you are married, you should know you need God. <laughs> Am I right? If you're married, you should know you need God. Marriage teaches us that day after day after day, because in marriage, you discover that you don't have enough patience. You don't have enough grace. You don't have enough wisdom. You don't have enough forgiveness. You don't have enough love. You don't have enough goodness to make the relationship work the way it should. You just don't. I don't. And you discover that your spouse is incapable of making your life that blissful experience that you hoped it would become when you entered into that marriage relationship. You discover in marriage that you need God. Friends, many folks today uh, folks who do not know Jesus, folks who do not consider the Bible a book given to them by God, they, they've just decided that they will do life without this cumbersome institution called marriage. And uh, they will just have partners, people with whom they will live for a time uh, until such time as they decide it's not working for them anymore. It's not making them happy. So forget things like these heavy promises that are made in the context of marriages, promises like to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part according to God's holy ordinance. And thereto I pledge you my faith. Promises like that. Friends, partnerships today are generally low profile, meaning they're not entered into with some kind of sacred vow or ceremony. Uh, they're low commitment, uh, meaning, you know, again, no vows. They're low trust because you can get in or get out whenever you want to. And I'll just be honest here, because of all of that, they are also very often low return, a very low return because of low investment. A Pew Research project on cohabitation in the United States, this was just released in November of 2019, so it's very recent, found that trust levels in cohabitant relationships are significantly lower than in marriage relationships. 
This same study found that 38% of cohabitant relationships were entered into just for convenience. It's an easier way to pay the rent. We'll sleep together, we'll pretend to do life together, and we'll pay the rent together just for convenience. It also found that half of cohabitating relationships in the United States end within a year. I found that staggering. Half of cohabitating relationships end within a year and only 10% last more than five years. So if that was you and you cohabitated and you made it past five years, you're, you're in the you know, 10% category. The bottom line is this was, this was their conclusion of their findings that these findings confirm previous research showing that cohabitating relationships have lower levels of commitment, higher rates of infidelity and conflict, and are significantly more likely to end than married relationships. So low investment, low return. And again, if it's true, and this is what Christians believe, admittedly, if it's true that God himself invented marriage, if it is true that God made us in his image, then the best possible thing we can do for our lives, for our society, is to understand what God says about marriage and bring our thinking and our practice into conformity with what he says. Because when we do that, that's when we can experience life the way Jesus says he came to both demonstrate it and give it to us. He said, I came that they may have life and and have it abundantly, richly, the way God intended human beings to live. And if we listen to God, the promise of the Bible is that we can live abundantly. That doesn't mean, and we've said this a jillion times, doesn't mean without problems, that doesn't mean without difficulty, doesn't, doesn't mean anything like that. It just means do life with God's help. And that is by itself the description, abundant living. Do relationships with Jesus Christ in them. These, those relationships will be uh, uh, abundant, satisfying, good relationships. And this is also true even in our difficult marriages. I know we don't have any difficult marriages in this church, but, you know, I'm just talking about Holly and I, okay? <laughs> Let me put all of this another way. The Bible says that what most glorifies God will also most advance your happiness. These two things are inextricably connected. That when you place yourself under God in glad submission to his rule and his authority, that's when you will experience your greatest joy, your greatest freedom, your greatest happiness, and the greatest sense of contentment. You just won't find those things apart from glorifying God, friends. You just won't. And so we must not buy into the lie that says, you know what? If I submit myself to God, if I give my life to glorifying him, whatever that may mean, if I gladly surrender to him and to his authority, this is going to make me miserable. This is going to ruin my life. This is going to kill all my fun. Understand that was the lie that Adam and Eve bought in the garden. It's the lie we've been buying ever since. Even those of us who follow Jesus, we so often buy this lie. The Bible says that that is not true. That's a terrible lie. Submitting to God, glorifying God is exactly what leads to what Jesus called abundant life. And the Bible says you were made by God. You were made for God. Your happiness and thriving are, as I said, inextricably tied to his glory. Another way to say all this is his glory is your happiness. And we really believe that here. 
That's why we, we want to teach, study, look at, understand the Bible and live in accordance to it. Now, I would just observe that our culture, as it continues to move further and further away from a Judeo-Christian value, a Judeo-Christian ethics, uh, what that is going to mean for us, already does in many cases mean for us, is that every day, day in, day out, we have to decide. You know, who, who will I follow? Who will I let shape my life and my decisions? Who will I let govern my relationships? Who will I listen to with regards to my sexuality and my gender and my ethics and my choices and my time and my talent and my treasures and just put anything in there? Who's going to be your guide? Where is your anchor? Who tells you do this and don't do that? The question is, will I follow Jesus and submit myself to him and his teaching? Even though my culture, my peers, my coworkers, my neighbors, my fellow students, my teachers think that Jesus and the Bible and his values and his ethics are just stupid. 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 Well, with that in mind, here is what the word of God says, at least in one place about marriage. And it's so interesting to me that the apostle Paul writes these words, the guy who's not married, but he's the guy who is married to Jesus Christ, his husband, you see. And Paul clearly understood that, clearly understood that. So these are his words. This is out of Ephesians chapter five. This is what he says. Listen carefully. He says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their, their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. What part of that do you not like? I have a hunch. I know what some, you know, women don't like in there. And I, I don't exactly love being told to die for my wife. I mean, there's just lots of stuff in there to not like. If you want to be honest, there's lots of stuff in there that flies in the face of our culture. What? You're telling me to submit to or die for? What? That's not going to lead to my happiness. Well, will it? Won't it? What decisions are you going to make around that? Now, there are all kinds of questions. What do some of those things even mean? Uh, we might get to that in the weeks to come. Uh, we're not going to dive into that this morning. What I want to note here this morning with you is that marriage is a profound mystery. It really is. It's one that refers to Jesus and the church. It teaches us something about Jesus and the church. The point that Paul is making is that marriage is by design meant to display. It's meant to explain. It's meant to proclaim who Jesus is. 
and what Jesus is like. Marriage dramatizes what Jesus does for his bride, the church. That means for you and for me. If you follow Jesus question, uh, are you aware that God looks at you this way? I would submit to you. I think we're often not aware of this. Are you aware? And I know guys, it can be funky thinking of yourself as a bride, but, but you know, get over it. The Bible does this all the time. You know, it'll talk to men, but it's including women in that same idea that women do this all the time. Guys, we've got to do it too, especially right here when the Bible teaches this doctrine that we are brides. Um, are you aware that the scriptures speak of you, of us, of the church as a bride? When God thinks of you, when he looks at you, he sees someone he loves, someone he celebrates, someone that he is passionate about. So much so that God marries us. And what that means is he makes a covenant with us. We're going to talk more about that in the weeks to come. But God has entered into a covenant with us. It's called the covenant of grace. Thank God it's not the covenant of judgment. It could have been, but it wasn't because of Jesus. When we marry, we enter into a covenant with our spouse. Uh, it reflects, it images very imperfectly, but it images it. Covenant, although uh, much more radical because the penalties for breaking a covenant were oftentimes death. A covenant is similar to a contract today where rarely are the penalties death, right? But, but there are binding commitments and binding promises that we make when we enter into contracts. Why do we do contracts? Precisely because we understand that one or both of the parties in a contract at some point may be tempted to try and get out of the contract. That's why we sign them. I hardly need to mention this, but I will anyway. You know, when we bought a home, uh, we've bought two since we've lived in, in Colorado here for 34 years. You know, we put money down and we said, yeah, we'll pay you, pay you money every month. They weren't, they weren't good with that. They wanted us to sign a contract that had repercussions if we ever missed a payment, right? They wanted something binding. Friends, understand, marriage is a binding covenant contract. God means it to be that way because it says something about who he is to us. In it, we make promises. We make pledges before God and before witnesses. But you understand at a wedding, the one party that matters most who's there is God. <laughs> it's not the witnesses, it's not the family, it's God. God is listening to the promises that are being made. In a marriage, we proclaim not only our love for one another now, I mean like blah, 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 who doesn't know that? You're getting married. Yes, of course, you have passion for one another, desire for one another. You've been in pursuit of one another. You have a preference for one another. But understand in a wedding, you're not just declaring what you are going to do now you're actually looking ahead to the future. You're declaring your future love. That's an entirely different issue. We say 10, 20, 30 years from now, I'll be there. I'll still choose to love you even if you are not that lovely, even when you don't deserve it. And that's a love very similar, don't you see, to the love God has for you. It's covenantal love. It's constant. It doesn't ebb and flow. It's faithful, it's committed, it's unshakable. It's not based on circumstances. It's not based on moods or emotional shifts. God says in Jeremiah 31, 33, I will be your God, you will be my people. That's a marriage vow. God making a marriage vow to his people. 
Question, when you think of your relationship to God, do you think of it as you being committed to him primarily or him being committed to you primarily? Now, without a doubt, it's both, of course. It's both, (laughs) absolutely. But my experience personally and in talking with others is that we tend to think about our relationship with God primarily on terms or in terms of our commitment to him. How am I living today in this moment? Am I committed to him? But understand this. Scripture overwhelmingly emphasizes God's faithful commitment to you. It emphasizes his undying commitment to you in light of the fact that you're not faithful to him. You know, God says, I will be your God. You will be my people. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will lay down my life for you to pay for your sins, your infidelity. And God says, this is not a relationship that when I find out certain things about you, I'm going to cut and run. I'm out of here. God knows everything there is to know about you, but he says, I'm not going to cut and run. I will never leave you or forsake you. The apostle Paul says in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When is that day? When is the day of Christ Jesus? Well, it turns out the Bible tells us it's the day when Jesus returns to get his bride and take her home. It's that day. Why did Jesus, friends, stay hanging on the cross? When at any moment he could have said, okay, that's it. I'm done. Enough of this. This really hurts. I don't like this. I'm out of here. It's not making me happy anymore. Why did Jesus stay hanging on a cross? Because his love for you and for me is covenantal. His commitment to you is not based on emotions or the circumstances of the moment. The promises that he makes to you are are so significant and he is so faithful to them. He will see them through to the end even though it meant his death. That's the good news of the gospel, friends. That's why we gather here week after week. It's to celebrate his faithfulness to us and to confess our, frankly, unfaithfulness. You know, when God institutes marriage in Genesis 2.24, he uses the leave and cleave language, the idea of leaving your, your father and mother. And Paul picks up that image right here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. He says, do you understand? Uh, he, he says that we are to, to leave uh, and cleave to this, this new relationship that we've created, cleave to our spouse. And do you understand that that cleave part of the equation, the idea there is actually that you pursue, you go after this one you've committed yourself to. You become one with them. You make your spouse your priority in terms of human relationships. And that term, that idea gets its meaning from the fact that Jesus looks at you that way. You are his bride. He's cleaving to you. Not going to let go of you. He's going to keep pursuing you. He wants that kind of relationship, that kind of oneness with you. You are a priority to him. And that is both amazing and a mystery. It's a mystery why he loves us that way. 
Marriage is a very, in a very real sense, illustrates this whole thing that we're talking about, the truth about Jesus, the husband, and the truth about us, the bride. In marriage with our spouse, uh, whether you're the husband or the wife, we, we act like God towards one another. That's what we're called to do. We practice loving. In spite of the fact that we get it wrong every day, sometimes all too often, we practice loving. We practice submitting your will versus my will, laying down my desires for your desires. We practice forgiving. We practice patience. We practice showing mercy one to another. We practice seeing the beauty that God sees in our spouse. And then too, we practice for our part, things like repentance and seeking forgiveness and offering confession. I'm sorry, honey, what I said and how I said it, they were completely wrong. They were self-serving. I was just prosecuting my own case. And we let our help, our spouse help us grow. That's a huge part of what marriage is even all about. We'll talk a lot more about that. In marriage, we work in concert with God in such a way that we help our spouse become holy. We become increasingly radiant for the glory of God. We become more of what God wants us to be in a marriage, in a difficult marriage. We do that by loving them with grace and loving them with truth and learning how to have a biblical, holy, godly balance and those kinds of things. This means that sometimes it's acceptance. I'm not trying to change you. I'm just accepting you. I'm going to love you the way you are. Sometimes it means confrontation in a marriage. Sometimes it's invitation into deeper places of relationship. Sometimes it's challenge in a marriage. In the context to, uh, of, of always in a context in our marriages of commitment. I will never leave you or forsake you. That's the safest place to work on your character. And one day we will stand before the Father, just as it says, uh, Jesus would present his bride spotless, holy, unblemished, well too. One day we want to come before God and we would love to hear him say to us, look at what you've done with each other. Yeah, you know, no, that's not what I'm talking about. Look at what we have done with each other, what you've done with each other. You've weeded, you've watered. You guys are like a garden. How beautiful you both are. You're more beautiful than when you entered this relationship. Look how you've loved one another. It's similar to how I have loved you. Lots of grace, lots of mercy, lots of forgiveness. I hope you see that that is the, a whole lot bigger view of marriage than just is this making me happy. The purpose of marriage is... is is really not about making me happy. It's about making me what? Holy. What I'm trying to say is your marriage is about a whole lot more than just you. It really is. Yeah, it is about you, but it's about a whole lot more than just you. In fact, there is a transcendent purpose for your marriage, a purpose that actually does have cosmic significance. Your marriage, even if it is a difficult one, is about displaying and living and illustrating and proclaiming the truth about God's love for his bride, about God's love for you. Your marriage is supposed to be a picture, if you will, of redemption, 
Uh, you and your spouse, loving each other, submitting to each other, serving each other, speaking truth to each other, confronting each other, forgiving each other, repenting of your sins one to another, growing to be more like Jesus himself. Your perfect husband, my perfect husband. All of this proclaims who God is and what God is like and what his love looks like for the church. Marriage is all about being known at a very deep, increasingly deep and vulnerable level and not being rejected because of the truth about you. You see, that's God's perfect love for us on display. And oh yeah, did you know that God has a difficult marriage? Did you know this? Jesus has a difficult marriage. It's a very lopsided marriage. Because you and I are his bride. But he's redeeming us. And he's reshaping us. And he's making us holy at a very great price to himself. Friends, I want to challenge you. If you have a relationship with Christ, think of that relationship like a marriage. You are married to Jesus. He is your husband. How does he treat you? How does he interact with you? Uh, he is a husband who knows all of your secrets. Let me describe some of them. Evil, selfish thoughts. Evil, selfish deeds. Lies. Cutting corners. Failure to be faithful, either in thought or in deed. And those are just mine. Now I'll start listing yours. <laughs> yeah, chuckle, chuckle. We, we kind of have to, don't we? Otherwise, we better cry. Because that's the truth about us. And all that stuff in us is completely and fully known by our husband. And knowing that, he doesn't walk away. Knowing that, he doesn't abandon us. He doesn't say he's disgusted with us. He's sick and tired of dealing with us. When are you ever going to change? He doesn't say that. No, he loves us and he forgives us and he dies for us and he washes us all to present us holy someday without blemish. That's the gospel. Man, that is good news. That is what we are called to do for our spouses in our marriages. Exactly that same thing out of love and appreciation for Jesus Christ. We love and serve our spouse. We die to self. We put to death the flesh. We submit to one another for a greater, higher purpose, a cosmic purpose. But how can I do that, you say? Well, <laughs> good question. How can I love my self-centered, pushy, inconsiderate, obnoxious spouse? I'm reading a good book that I would recommend to any and all of you that, you know, I find I, I need tune-ups in this area so frequently. And, and one of the ways I do it is I, I find books that I've been told are really good on the subject and I read them and I underline them, mark them up, and then I give them to Holly so that she can change. <laughs> That's not true. Uh, it's, it's really the opposite. I actually, my, my prayer when I read these books is, okay, God, I know you got a lot of stuff to say to me here. It's going to be hard for me to hear it. Because what I just you know, said and we all chuckled about, that's what I want to do. What I need to do is grow in personal holiness. This is a great book. It's called Marriage. Can you remember that title? It's called Marriage by Paul David Tripp. 
In it, he says this. He says, a marriage of love, unity, and understanding will flow out only out of a daily worship of God as Savior. Now, that to me sounds like what a minister says on a platform, on a, out of worship of God daily. I mean, you know, but, but don't dismiss it. It sounds that way. It sounds kind of flowery or whatever, Christianese. But l- listen how he develops this idea, because I, I do think he's exactly right. A marriage of love, unity, and understanding will flow only out of a daily worship of God as Savior. Let me explain. There is no area that is more important than this, than your daily worship of, following of, loving, serving Jesus. It doesn't take long to realize that you have married a sinner and what you do when you make this discovery will determine the character and quality of your union. You will only respond in a way that is right, good, and helpful to your spouse's sin, weakness, and struggle when you are celebrating the transforming grace of an ever-present, always faithful God or Redeemer. And he keeps going. Hang with me here. You cannot let your responses to your spouse in these moments, you know, moments of hurt, moments of, uh, you know, difficulty. He says, you cannot let your responses to your spouse in these moments be driven by hurt or self-righteousness. They must be driven by worship, by vertical connection with God. What does this mean? Well, first, it means that when you celebrate God as Savior, you are confronted with the reality of how much you are in desperate need of grace. This makes it impossible for you to look at your spouse as the only sinner in the room or more of a sinner than you are. The fact is that no one gives grace better than someone who is convinced that he needs it as well. That's the key. Now that needs lots of development, but that is the key, friends. You can only love your deeply flawed spouse when you realize that all of their faults are equally true of you as well. And what they need is what you need, grace and mercy and forgiveness, and truth, and sometimes challenge. Yes, all these things. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's our motivation for loving our spouse right there. We do so out of reverence for Christ. Not because they deserve it. Not because every day they're earning our love and our affection or our forgiveness and our grace. Because they never will. Because you never will. We don't earn the love, the grace, the acceptance, the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. We never do. We never will. Maybe some here this morning needed a little refresher on what marriage is supposed to be about. You know, the why of marriage. Maybe some of us this morning needed to remember Jesus' grace to you as you reflect on how to respond to the sins of your spouse. Maybe some of us here this morning need to stop trying to change their spouse and start asking Jesus to change you. Maybe some here this morning are in marriages that uh, are really painful and really difficult and really need resurrection. It's easy for marriages to get there. If that's where you are, you're not in a unique place. Sad to say. Maybe you're in that marriage and your happiness is at an all-time low. You feel like you want to give up. Well, I would say to you, in the midst of all of that pain and difficulty and what feels like suffering, stop 
reflect. Seek the glory of God in the midst of that difficulty. Seek the glory of God in your life and in your marriage. Then that, of course, means a whole lot of humbling of self, self-examination. You might need to get help just to sort things out. Might need to see a counselor. These are things that, that we can help you with. What all of those kinds of ugly, difficult things that none of us want to do, what all of those things equal is growth in holiness. Growth in you becoming more like Jesus Christ. Believe me, that's the best thing you can do for your spouse. You see, here's the truth. No matter how dark or difficult a marriage may become, there's hope for change because of Jesus Christ, because he is your husband. And he is at work in you to make you holy. And he's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. That means he's going to pour resources into you that you need to change. He's going to give you wisdom that you don't possess. He's going to direct you to people that have some answers to questions you might have. He cares very much about your growth. And what we need to do is we need to seek his glory. And as we do, I believe that moves us in a direction of abundant living. Now, don't get me wrong. I haven't said anything about divorce in this message. I haven't said anything about what is it that breaks a marriage so badly that divorce becomes an option. Uh, I didn't do that in this message because that's not in this message. But that's a reality, isn't it, in our, isn't it? In our broken, fallen world? It, it, that, that's a reality. We'll likely get to that down the road. But have hope. Jesus is at work. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's going to empower you to be more like him, to love a spouse that's hard to love. So, so have hope. Believe, trust. Commit yourself to the glory of God in all of your relationships. And especially that most intimate of relationships, a relationship called marriage. Stand with me. Father, would you help us in our relationships? And we've been talking all about marriage this morning, kind of setting the table for future conversations. And God, we'll just be honest, we just fail so much at loving our partner, our spouse, our husband, our wife. And the spin out of that too is, God, we, we fail at loving our friends. We, we fail in all of our relationships to be exactly who we should be. And so, God, we need your help. Thank you that that is one of the great messages of marriage. Marriage does teach us that we need your help. Keep us from being finger pointers, God. Keep us from thinking of ourselves uh, more highly than we ought. Give us humility as we process our difficulties and our sins with our spouse. Give us Christ-like humility. Give us the tenacity to be willing to die to self, to put the flesh to death in order to love our spouse as you've called us to love them the way you love us. That's our prayer, Father. That's radical stuff. That's stuff that our culture thinks is so stupid and so wrong. And we believe, God, it's so right 
because that is the way that you love us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.